Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. I wanted to start off by um, telling a story of a lady named Panita. And this, this story was uh, recounted to me, um, or I read it in a book by um, Andrew Wilson. So I'm just going to read Andrew Wilson's uh, account. Uh, and you, you might remember Andrew, he spoke a few months ago uh, to us. Um, but he writes this, Panita. Panita was 14 when she was taken from her home in Thailand to Malaysia by a sex trafficker. She arrived in a city she had never seen before and was told she, she had been sold. She was told she had to perform her duties uh, with between five and ten clients each night, every night, and if she was to pay off her debt. If she refused, she would be beaten, she would not be allowed to eat. She was allowed to sleep between 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. in a locked and barred room with seven other slave girls and was forbidden from even putting her head out of the window. Helpless and terrified, she sat on her bed waiting. Thousands of miles away, a group of lawyers and investigators had seen something of the character of God. They had read Amos and the Psalms and Isaiah and encountered the God who championed the cause of the orphan and the widows and the victims. Taking seriously God's anger at injustice and the biblical commandments to set free the oppressed, they set up an organization that, among other things, prosecuted child traffickers and freed sex slaves, funded entirely by the charitable donations of others who had also gained revelation about this God of justice. International Justice Mission, or you might know them as IJM, was born. Panita never saw her first client. The night she was going to start, a raid was conducted with local police based on an undercover investigation done by IJM. She was set free without ever having to pay pay or prostitute herself. And 94 other girls were released in the same series of raids. 94 victims made in the image of God who were set free because some lawyers they had never met read their Bibles and discovered something of the character of the living God. And Andrew Wilson concludes with a simple two-word sentence. says, theology matters. Theology matters. Uh, We've been in a series called Ephesians. Of course, this week's going to be a quick departure, a quick break, but I just, I've loved this series. I really have as we've walked through verse by verse of scripture. And I love how we started this series because it's how Paul starts Ephesians by focusing first and foremost on the character of God. What we believe about God, it matters. It has implications and it carries weight. It really forms us. into who we're becoming. I mean, A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so today, I just want to get a little bit into who God actually is, 
one way he identifies himself on his terms. The hope is that it would stir our hearts, that it might form us into his vision, his vision, uh, and not the vision that the world has for us. And, and again, today we're just going to scratch the surface about the biblical concept of justice. I do mean that, just scratch the surface. It's an expansive topic. There's no way I can even begin to touch this in this format. But I just think it's so important. I mean, in today's hyper-politicized, super-polarized, Twitter war, bomb-throwing, nuance-devoid culture that we have, um, when even you, you come to an issue like justice and social justice, and by the way, many of the people talking about that right now actually have way varying visions, and some see the Bible as a barrier, and Scripture and Christianity as a barrier to justice, a relic we need to like, move behind, leave behind and move beyond if we're actually to like, achieve justice. I think if we're not really super vigilant about forming ourselves to who God is, to His character, to what Scripture says, and putting our eyes on Him and letting Him form us, then we will inevitably be formed by culture. Because we, we live in contested space. It's not neutral. We're going to be formed one way or the other. It's who, who's going to form us, which vision is going to form us. So theology matters, to quote Andrew Wilson again. Um, I want to give a quick book recommendation before I really just jump into it. Uh, this book, I don't know if you can see it, Generous Justice by Tim Keller. Um, most of what I'm going to speak today is actually the first chapter of this book. You can pretty much assume if you hear it today, I'm probably plagiarizing Tim Keller. So I'll just get that out on the table uh, right now. But it's a short book, great read. I would recommend it to you. Um, there's others too, but that one's good. All right, let's get to work. Uh, there's so many ideas when it comes to justice. Everyone thinks they are on the side of justice. And today and this summer, I mean, it's just even been, been more so apparent. One side tends to think of justice in terms of rule of law, law and order. Another group of people tends to talk about justice in terms of fighting things like racism, confronting unjust systems. And yet, I want to suggest the biblical concept of justice is actually far more rich, it's more complex, it's more nuanced, it's more startling, it's more wonderful than I think our Western categories like to uh, categorize it. So I won't, I won't go in too much into detail, but justice has a few different Hebrew and Greek words in Scripture. We read justice in our Bibles, but it's actually, there's no word in Scripture, one word for justice. There's several different words. The one that you probably encounter the most uh, is called mishpat. If you can unmute, say mishpat. Uh, Manette can tell me if I'm pronouncing that right or not. <laughs> uh, but even that, it's used 200 times in the Old Testament alone, uh, but it it can be translated several different things in our, in our scripture. Sometimes it's translated uphold the cause. Sometimes it's translated rights. Sometimes it's called a translated rule of law. Sometimes it's translated righteousness and, and righteous. And sometimes it's called justice. And there's other words too um, that, that kind of go along with this, especially the word that we get righteous. A lot of times it's paired and mercy is paired right with justice. And scholars will tell you when you see them together, it can just as likely be translated social justice. And it's really interesting. We think of righteousness as like this internal moral thing and justice as this external thing. But in scripture, it's all kind of combined together. There's not those categories. And I think it just, on, on the surface, without getting into too much details, and by the way, I, I think I've, I've heard that the women in the study that they, they went through really explore this in depth. So, so if you want an education, 
go grab one of the, the ladies that went through the, the, um, the, the, the study. But it gives you just a, an idea of how expansive this concept is and how it's not just kind of the category that we define it. Um, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann defines justice as this. Justice is when God works out what belongs to whom and makes sure that they get it. Works out what belongs to whom and makes sure that they get it. Another way to say that is to do justice means to give people their due. And it's interesting, in, in, in the New Testament, in Jesus, uh, you know, in, in Matthew 23, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. He's, he's bringing some harsh words. In, in 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Uh, not a good day to be called a hypocrite by Jesus, right? Um, he says, For you tie the mint and dill and cumin, these spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. He's making a pun. Obviously, spices are super light. He's saying, but actually, you've neglected these weightier matters of the law. What does he describe as weightier? What does he classify as weightier matters? He says this, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I don't know about you. I grew up in an incredible evangelical tradition that I, I mean, I'm so grateful. The leaders and the church, I mean, they poured so much into me. I I, I'm indebted to kind of the deposit they gave me. But I'll t- say this, when it comes to mercy and when it comes to faithfulness, obviously we, we have a lifetime to learn what that means. But I feel like, you know, I heard a lot about that growing up. When it comes to justice, to be honest, it wasn't until, I can't remember, until my senior year of high school when I remember encountering a theology of justice. Um, I was actually on a mission or a trip. I went to Kosovo a few years after the Serbian war, and I was side by side with my peers, people my age, and they were, I was in their house, and they were living literally next to rubble from the war that just ravaged their land a few years ago. I started learning about the child soldiers in Uganda, how just young preteens were stripped from their homes and put guns in their hand and forced to do acts of war. I mean, it was just, I had no, it honestly caused a crisis of faith in me. And I, because I, I didn't feel like I had a framework for justice. So what is it? What's, what is this weightier topic? Um, <clears throat> I think there's at least two sides of justice. You can describe it as, I mean, obviously more, but for purposes of this, two sides. The first is this, everyone is treated equally. There is a level playing field. When the Bible talks about justice, it means there is a divine court bench. That court bench is occupied by none other than God. And God alone. And the great news is this. He rules with fairness. Psalm 9. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. Hopefully that's, that's okay. If nothing else, you'll get something out of that. Uh, Psalm 9, verses 7 through 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He establishes his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. There's justice and righteousness together. He judges people with uprightness. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this in the message. God holds the high sinner. He sees and sets the world's mess right. Man, that's good news, isn't it? He decides what is right for us earthlings, gives people their just desserts. <laughs> I love that. Their just desserts. Um, I heard an illustration on the radio once about a, um, there was a study of this parole board. They looked at 1,000 cases um, that went before this parole board over, over a span of 10 months. And what they found 
as the determining factor of whether you received a favorable ruling or an unfavorable ruling. Think, guess what it is? It wasn't the merits of the case. It wasn't the socioeconomic demographics of the subjects. It wasn't anything you would think, or at least I would think. The single factor that determined, single most important factor that determined whether you're going to get a favorable ruling or not is how close your hearing was to lunch. <laughs> no kidding. If your hearing was early in the day or right after a lunch break, you had a 60 to 70% chance of receiving a favorable ruling. As the day went on, your chances went down to practically 0%. Crazy. Uh, one headline read, justice is served, but much so after lunch. I, uh, I love that. Uh, I mean, I hate that. Uh, but it just shows you like just how subjective and how finicky like we can be even without, you know, any animus at all. Um, but the good news is our God doesn't grow tired. He doesn't go hangry, as it were. Uh, he rules with fairness for everyone. And he tells us in Scripture to follow that. You treat everyone fairly. Don't play favorites. In Leviticus 24, verse 22, he says, Have the same rule of law, or mishpat, for the foreigner as the native. He said, don't have two justice systems. Don't have two different ways you treat everyone. Treat everyone with the same rules. Treat everyone fairly. And why is this? This goes back to the classic doctrine of the Imaho Dei, Genesis 1. We are the image of God, each and every one of us, made in the image of God. Uh, we're going to learn in Ephesians 2, and we get there, that Paul says we are his workmanship, we're his craftsmanship. He, he, he makes us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. And that means that each of us are infused with dignity from the very creator of the entire universe. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in his, in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, he, he says this, the whole concept of the Mahode, the image of God, is the idea that men, all men, have something within them that God injected that gives them uniqueness, that gives him worth, that gives him dignity. We must never forget this. There are no degradations in the image of God. And I love this. Every man from the treble white to the black bass is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. MLK Jr. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament yourself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Love it. So the first aspect of justice is this. Everyone's treated equally, but there's actually another side of justice. Something really inescapable, I think, when you read the breadth of Scripture. And it's this, the biblical idea, yes, justice, there is equal treatment for everyone. And yet, equal treatment, and yet, there are certain populations that are of special concern. You can say it this way, one side of justice may be punishing the wicked or bringing down the perpetrator. The other side of justice, though, is to lift up the vulnerable, to give the defenseless and powerless their rights. And over and over again in Scripture, when you read about God's justice, it's actually linked with his care for the vulnerable and the powerless. Have you never noticed, oftentimes, how God introduces himself in Scripture? Um, I work in a small business, um, and part of my responsibility is, is sales and marketing, and was reading some sales resources and getting some coaching and training um, about using LinkedIn for uh, biz dev and prospecting. If you're familiar with LinkedIn, you know 
um, you know, the first thing on your profile, you see your name and then right under it is your position or your title. And I had written, you know, what I did, managing director at Enliven. And I was coached, actually don't put that, put something really succinct and marketable about how you help people, about what you do. So I, I changed that, you know, we help people save money on their beverage contracts. Uh, super exciting, right? <laughs> but, um, but, but it was like, get it succinct, get it marketable. So whenever someone like sees, goes to your profile picture, they see exactly what you do in a nutshell. You, you, get, it, you, you get it just right. I, I, I kind of wonder, and it's corny, but if God had a LinkedIn profile, you know, like what would, did he want to be known for? What is one thing at least that he would say, this is, this is my business card, this is my calling card. Over and over again in scripture, he says, I am a powerful God, and I love to use my power, especially on behalf of the weak and the powerless. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 146, verses 6 through 9. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. Big God. Next verse. He executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. He watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the way of the wicked. The two sides of justice, right? Deuteronomy 10, verses 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, big God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. It's interesting. God repeatedly says, I mean, he calls himself other things in scripture. I don't want to overplay this point. But, it, but one thing he does say about himself is I am unsurpassed in my power, and yet I choose to leverage that power for the powerless. Psalm 68, rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. And the Old Testament scholars, if you research this, they have a name for this category of people. And they, they call it, they're included in this call for justice. They call it the quartet of the vulnerable. It includes the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor. It's actually remarkable. What is he saying? He's at the heart of who I am. I am father to the fatherless. I'm husband to the widow. I'm advocate to the immigrant. It's who I am, which is incredible. If you think about it, in that time, in the Old Testament time, no other God that I'm aware of would identify with the powerless, the vulnerable, right? They would, they would want to identify with the kings, the priests, the military heroes, the people with power. Like that's who God's on the side of. But but this God, Yahweh, sided not with the outcasts, or not with the elite, sorry, but the outcasts. Um, in a patriarchal society dominated by men, God says, I'm the God of the widow. I stand by the poor woman. In a society where family was your identity, God says, I, I stand by the fatherless and the orphan. In a society where tribe and race were your security, it's what you clung to. He said, I stand with the foreigner. I stand with the immigrant, the sojourner. Why would he say that? I mean, why in, in Proverbs 38, verse 8, it says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. That's not just a command for charity, for generosity. It's actually a command for advocacy. Why does he do that? Um, <clears throat> here's an illustration I, again, shamelessly stole from Tim Keller. 
Uh, but we know in our city, like in, I looked it up, in San Francisco public schools in the SFUSD, 54% of students are economically disadvantaged. That's over 30,000 kids. I think in Nashville it was 74%. It's happening in cities across our country. And we know they're, they're, the kids are encountered, encountering a myriad of things, but at least three things. One, broken families. Two, failing and under-resourced educational systems. Three, poor social peer environments. So kids are, kids are growing up by the time 14 or 15, they're 14 or 15, the studies say, if, if they're illiterate, they can't read or write, they're functionally illiterate, um, then basically they won't be able to get a job. There's no place for them in our economy. Their die has been cast, barring some miracle. I mean, in San Francisco, only 14% of low-income African Americans were proficient on their English test in the SF Unified School District, 14%. It's crazy. Now, that's a complicated issue, and, and there's a myriad of things we can talk about. But basically, I just want to say this. One group may look at that and say, that's a breakdown of family. Uh, that's a breakdown of traditional values. Where are the fathers at? Another group may say, hey, that's a breakdown of the education system and the way we distribute tax dollars and educational funds. But the point is this. No one is looking at the child and saying, child, what are you doing? That's your fault. No one, no one says to a three-year-old, um, you know, your three-year-old should be saying, I, I got to find me a pair of parents that are going to read to me. You know, no one's saying to the seven-year-old, you need to like figure out how to like manipulate the system and get in the school district to go to that school. No one's saying that. And it shows you just how fallen that one example our world is and, and how our resources and assets and opportunities, they're, they're not equitably distributed. Now, you know, this is just one example of many uh, according to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics, an African-American male born today has a 32% chance of seeing the inside of a jail cell in his lifetime. A white male born today has a 6% chance. Um, where are we from in Nashville? If you were born in the poorest zip code, statistically speaking, your life would be 10% shorter than if you were born in the richest. In San Francisco, African-Americans account for 6% of the population, but 41% of the arrests and 39% of the sentences. Now, these are complicated, complicated issues. There's a variety of valid, smart ideas and opinions and thoughts and strategies. And I'm not here to suggest answers right now. Um, the point is for me, I think, can I, I can look at those and they just become stats. Are those stats to me? Or are those people? Are those people that I, are made in the image of God and that God cares about? So go, to go back to the question, why is God so passionate, particularly about the poor and the defenseless and the outsider? <clears throat> I, think, I think this, because while justice and equal treatment is vital to all, um, they are the ones that are not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but actually disproportionately experience injustice. And, and, in, and in Scripture, the calls to... The calls to render justice to the poor actually outnumber the calls for justice to the well-off by a factor of 100 to 1. So while God has many things he is known for, and I don't want to suggest this is the only thing, but he does say this is something that I do. This is one of the things I do want to be known for. I am father to the fatherless. I, I stand with the vulnerable, the oppressed. And I just want to ask, is this... Is this one thing that we will be known for as we, as we start off on this venture, as, 
Is this something that I am known for? I want it to be. Um, so there, there are a few implications here, and I'll pull out just two. Um, number one, first point, God has not forgotten about the poor, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. Uh, if you're like me, man, you look at your newsfeed, you look at what's going on, the incredible, unfathomable about, amount of injustice in our world. I mean, you talk about COVID, you talk about racism in our country, all, everything we've learned this summer, and the in, even the intersection of those two. I mean, I, but we were driving home um, from uh, Santa Cruz this week, and we saw you know a homeless tent, and the air quality was so bad, and I'm just thinking, where are those folks able to go to get clean air? You know, I think about the Uyghurs in China. I think about the Syrian refugees. I mean, it's just everywhere. It can get overwhelming. And um, yet scripture tells us that God is powerful, that he hears the cry of the oppressed, and that in his timing, he will act. He will. Psalm 10, verses 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their, your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that, the, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And so there, there will be an answer. So I, just, I, I do want to say this clearly. Like If you are downcast today, if you're lonely if you're crying out for God, if you're poor in spirit, God hears your cry. He does. He hears it. In fact, he doesn't just hear it. Christianity says he experienced it. It's crazy. Um, there was an African-American writer who wrote in Time magazine. She, was, she had a horrific childhood. Her mother was actually murdered by her mother's boyfriend. The injustice she encountered turned her away from God. And then, and then she wrote in Time about this conversion experience she had. She said, suddenly, as the teacher was talking about the cross, I had a revelation. I realized that Jesus not only suffered for us, but he suffered with us. I realized, realized that Jesus not knew what it was like to go into the lash. Jesus knew what it was like to stand up to people in power. Jesus knew what it was like to experience a corrupt justice system. And suddenly, I realized that on the cross, Jesus was lynched. And it went right through me. She said, he didn't just suffer for us, he suffered with us. And I'm not aware of another religion in the world that has a God that actually experiences injustice. Not only that, he promises he will do something about it. The cross was that first step. But in Revelation 21, 4, he says, we're actually given a picture of heaven, and it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. I love, Christy, your prayer. You quoted uh, earlier today, you quoted uh, Sam in The Lord of the Rings when he famously says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer, the Christian answer to that question is a resounding yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. So the first implication, God has not forgotten about the poor, the vulnerable, or the oppressed. But the second implication is neither should we. 
Neither should we. Gary Haugen, the founder of the IJM, which was from the Andrew Wilson quote at the start. He says, no thoughtful Christian would say, sure, Jesus wants his gospel preached, the hungry fed, the sick healed, the naked clothed, but that, that doesn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> right? Um, Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you? To, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. First uh, John three seventeen, going to the New Testament, John writes, if anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them. How can the love of God be in that person? I mean, oh, that hurt, that hits home, right? And Isaiah 58, just to round it out, um, you see a stunning rebuke from God. Israel is worshiping and fasting to God. It says they are seeking him, it actually says they were seeking him day by day. And yet in the midst of that, God offers this challenge. He said, is not, the kind of fasting I have chosen is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor immigrant with shelter time and time again God says if you want to truly worship me practice justice are you feeling guilty yet? <laughs> Oh, man, I am. I mean, you hear that and you're like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? I mean, I'm thinking I've been in San Francisco for a year now and I haven't even done anything. Like, what? Ah, you know, like, what am I going to do? Like, ah, it, 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 it whips up this frenzy in you. It does it me. And, and maybe if it doesn't loop that up in you, maybe or maybe it does for a minute and you do something and then you swing on the pendulum to the other side and you feel all self-righteous because you're one of the ones that get justice. You're the one of the ones that are right. And you can thumb your nose at all those people that, you know, don't really care about it, you know, until you're not doing it again, and then you're feeling guilty, and you, you get on this whipsaw. Um, I mean, that's, that's how I feel sometimes, right? What are we to do? How, how, how do we get, get past this? How do we actually, like, live in a way that this is overflowing naturally from us, in a way that's honoring to God, it's sustainable, it's motivating, it's full of love and compassion? I think the answer... Is this um, theology matters? Theology matters. I want to tell a story. Um, I want to brag on my wife. If anyone should actually be teaching on this topic, it shouldn't be me. It should be my wife. Um, she is amazing and has such a beautiful, wonderful heart uh, for the poor and the oppressed and and, and for justice. Um, you may not even know this about it. She helped produce a, a documentary on sex trafficking in the U.S. I mean, this is she's. She's amazing, but this story is, is, is pretty incredible. In Nashville, uh, we were fortunate to have a great house, but right across the street from the house, there was a triplex, like three houses. They weren't exactly low income, um, but I don't think it was a far stretch to say they were managed by slumlords, and, uh, or a slumlord. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was just a, a myriad cast of characters across the street. I mean, one of them we actually knew was a drug dealer, um, there was all sorts of host of characters, there were police calls, there was all sorts of things. And I would describe my attitude um, <laughs> as I looked across the street, at best, as indifferent. But if I'm honest, I mean, especially as we, we welcomed our first child, our daughter, into the world, and I started looking at her across the street, I began, um, I think, 
you know, maybe some words that come to mind would be arrogant, um, frustrated, uh, entitled. I felt like I would look my nose down at them a little bit. And uh, especially, you know, anyway, I, I just, my, my posture was defensiveness and standoffish. Uh, and um, I came home one day and I pulled into our driveway and I saw Kelsey on our porch uh, with uh, a lady that I'd recognized from being across the street. And she, was, she seemed about our age. And they were just chatting. Josie was a baby at this point. She was in the stroller. And I come to find out that um, Kelsey was going for a walk in the neighborhood and, uh, you know, with, with the stroller and just felt this tiny nudge from the Holy Spirit to go across the street. And as uh, she saw this lady sitting on her front steps to go just strike up a conversation. Lo and behold, I don't remember how many hours that conversation led into, but she invited her over to our porch, served them some juice or tea or coffee or something. And they got into like an multi-hour long conversation. And that began a journey where Kelsey was befriending this person. I mean, really over weeks and months and really years, there's so much distrust. We had, you know, she had to break through and earn that trust in that relationship. And come to find out, uh, this person was actually eyeing Kelsey because she had recently become pregnant and she had no one to walk life, that season of life with through. And uh, getting to know her story a little bit more, um, we just started to learn about, about where she came from and realized she actually came from a background much like ours. She went to a high school much like ours, went to a youth group much like ours, and she was about our age. And then we started to learn her story. And when she was a, a teenager, young teen, uh, a mentor in her life that she looked up to um, abused her, sexually abused her. And it was actually in the church. And it set her on this course that, um, you know, that really just changed the trajectory of her life for the worse. In fact, even her pregnancy was a result of this pattern that had emerged in her life ever since that, that moment of uh, male figures in her life abusing her. And, uh, and in that moment, I just remember thinking of how I judged her <laughs> from my side of the windows, looking over the street, and wished, honestly, that they would just go away. Um, we had the privilege, I mean, she's become a dear friend of ours, and actually before we left Nashville, she wrote uh, Kelsey a note saying, telling Kelsey basically that Kelsey was the first friend that she felt she had that loved her unconditionally. And we had the privilege before we left of actually um, baptizing her. Kelsey baptized her, and uh, just incredible, incredible story, and just once again, my wife's an angel. I mean, she's awesome. And it all started by this prompting from the Holy Spirit to go have that conversation, to, to love well, one person at a time. And I tell that story. Why am I telling that story? Well, Deuteronomy 10, it says this. God says, you are to love those who are foreigners. But then he continues, Why? It says, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt, and God brought you out 
In verse 15, it says, Yet the Lord still set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants. He chose you. So he's like, why do I care about the foreigners? Why am I calling you to love the foreigners? Because you were a foreigner, and I brought you out. Because I loved you. I had my eyes set on you. So he set his affection on you. And the truth is, we are outsiders, and God brought us in. We were vulnerable, and God put us in this wonderful, beautiful family that we're a part of right now. We were poor, and God says he lavishes his riches on us. We were oppressed by sin. We were sheep without a shepherd, right? And God made a way for us. Martin Luther King Jr. says, justice is love correcting everything that revolts against love. On the cross, you see justice, I think, in its purest form. Love correcting everything that revolts against love. I love that. Jesus didn't, he didn't stay on his side of the street. <laughs> he didn't look down from heaven and say, you know what, you got to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. He didn't say, you know, I want to help the spiritually poor, but, but only like the deserving poor, only those that help themselves. I mean, if he would have said that to us, we would have been toast. And just like I realized, I mean, but for one poor decision I would make or someone else would make to me or a sickness or something, I could have been in the exact same situation. Kelsey could have been in the exact same situation as that lady beside this, on the other side of the street. We don't know their stories. And actually, we spiritually were in that condition. We, the gospel says we couldn't even lift a finger to save ourselves. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. The gospel says you're worse than you ever feared, but at the exact same time, you are more loved than you could ever imagine. He says this. He says, I love you. I call you by name. I'm moving into your neighborhood. I'm going to take on your condition so that I can be with you. And you can be with me. He did all of that, Hebrews said, for joy. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He did that because he loves us. He took on our punishment and he credits us his righteousness because he loves you. He loves you. He's crazy about you. He's crazy about me. Now, when I get that in me, when I get that in me, when I realize, oh my goodness, I couldn't do a single darn thing. And yet God came after me and he loved me unconditionally. When I get that in me, it kills any smugness. It kills any self-righteousness, but also compels me to spread out that love like I've been loved, to do what's been done for me, to show to demonstrate on this earth what God has done for me. Um, I think it's so easy for us to go into, when we talk about justice, to go into strategies and to go into this like theory mode and to try to figure out on a big meta level. And I think that's all really, really important stuff. But I also think it's important, just as this vision that we've been laying out and Tom's been laying out about loving well one person at a time. Like, who is it that Jesus is calling us in his kindness, his He's just whispering us, go across the street, have that conversation, and wonder what would would happen uh, if if we did that. I really think it's an invitation for us um, that God is so eager for uh, us to partner with him in his work that he's doing in justice. He's like saying, I've got great works for you. I've got these great stories. 
And I, I want you, I'm inviting you to partner with me in what I've done for you. Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll end there. I just, let, me just, let me just pray for us as we, as we leave this, as we close this message out. And George can lead us. Father, we love you. We thank you so much um, that you lifted us up in our condition. And actually, as we were perpetrators against you, you saw us and you loved us and you came after us and you took our punishment on, on your shoulders and you showered us with grace and mercy. I just thank you so much, Father, um, that you know what it's like. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you can sympathize with us. You're not unsympathetic to us. And yet, you actually were the one who came and really did something about it. I thank you, Father, that you didn't um, ignore us in our condition. And I just pray, I pray that none of this would land heavy on us, Father, but it would really be this invitation to know that, you're, that we'd get a glimpse of your heart, that that would motivate us, that that would animate us, that that would give us a vision for what you want to do in San Francisco and beyond. I just pray for even me, Father, as... Uh, as you're doing a work in me, <laughs> that you would set this before us, set this before me, and that we truly would be a people and a family that joins you in doing justice and practicing mercy, Father. And uh, I just pray that this is just the beginning, uh, that you would teach us and form us and we would be discipled into your image. Yeah, I just pray, Father, um, that your good news would be on our lips and that we would be um, completely just enmeshed in the goodness of your gospel and that would motivate us. Father, we love you. Amen.